Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! The one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine stands as a grim milestone for the people of Ukraine and for the international community. That invasion is an affront to our collective conscience. It is a violation of the United Nations Charter and international law. It's been one year since Russia invaded Ukraine, triggering a humanitarian crisis and a war that's impacted the globe. More than 8,000 civilians have been killed. Over 8 million refugees have fled Ukraine, and the fighting continues. We'll spend the hour looking at Ukraine a year after the invasion, as well as the war's impact in Africa and on Russian-Chinese relations, as China's top diplomat meets Vladimir Putin in Moscow. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's militaries bombed parts of the Gaza Strip after Palestinian militants fired rockets at southern Israel overnight. The Israeli airstrikes targeted the al-Shati refugee camp northwest of Gaza City, which is among one of the most densely populated areas of the besieged Palestinian territory. Israel says one of the rockets fired from Gaza landed in an open field, while five others were shot down by Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system. The latest violence follows an Israeli raid on the west Bank city of Nablus Wednesday that killed 11 Palestinians. Health officials report more than 500 suffered tear gas insulation and other injuries. 82 people treated for gunshot wounds after the assault. Among the wounded is Palestinian TV journalist Mohammed Al Khatib, who was shot in the hand. On Wednesday, the UN Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process Tour of Venisland said he was, quote, deeply disturbed by the continued cycle of violence and appalled by the loss of civilian lives, unquote. His comments came after the head of Amnesty International, Agnès Calamar, called on the U.N. Human Rights Council to turn its attention to the occupied Palestinian territories. At a moment where we ask the entire international community to support Ukraine against the Russians' aggression, it's absolutely right. This Russian aggression is unthinkable. We cannot allow it. But we also cannot allow what is happening in the occupied territories of Palestine. The Human Rights Council must raise these two realities and insist on these two realities. In Moscow, Russian President Vladimir Putin led a massive pro-war rally Wednesday, coming just ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. An estimated 200,000 people joined the rally in Moscow's main stadium. That's roughly the equivalent of the number of Russian soldiers estimated to have been killed or wounded in Ukraine. This week, the head of the Russian mercenary Wagner Group, Evgeny Prigozhin, 
accused the Russian defense ministry of treason for allegedly attempting to destroy Wagner by withholding ammunition and supplies. The U.S. estimates more than 20,000 members of the Wagner Group have been injured in Ukraine, with about 9,000 killed in action. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden wrapped up his three-day trip to Ukraine and Poland Wednesday with a meeting of the Bucharest Nine, leaders of nations on NATO's eastern flank. Biden pledged the U.S. would invoke Article 5 of NATO's charter, the Collective Self-Defense Clause, if any member is attacked. Article 5 is a sacred commitment the United States has made. We will defend literally every inch of NATO, every inch of NATO. A federal judge in New York ruled 9-11 families cannot claim $3.5 billion from the Central Bank of Afghanistan as compensation. Judge George Daniels said, quote, neither the Taliban nor the plaintiffs are entitled to raid the coffers of the state of Afghanistan to pay the Taliban's debts. The money was part of $7 billion of Afghan funds that were deposited in the New York Federal Reserve and frozen by President Biden after the Taliban takeover in 2021. He subsequently allocated half of that money to aid efforts in Afghanistan as Afghans and rights groups fought to return all the funds to the Afghan people amidst an ongoing humanitarian disaster. The combined death toll from the February 6 earthquake and its aftershocks in Turkey and Syria has topped 49,000, according to CNN, and continues to rise. The U.N. is warning there's an urgent need for shelter and aid in both countries. At least one and a half million people in Turkey became homeless from the quakes. Meanwhile, the government of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has issued fines to three broadcasters who aired coverage critical of the official earthquake response. In Nigeria, 18 presidential candidates have signed a second peace pact ahead of Saturday's pivotal elections in Africa's most populous nation. Nigerians will cast ballots for the next president, as well as lawmakers, as Mohamedou Buhari steps down after serving the two presidential terms allowed by the Constitution. It's the first time a candidate who's not from one of the two main parties could win since the end of military rule nearly a quarter of a century ago. The three front runners are Bola Tumubu of the ruling All Progressives Congress, Atik Abubakar of the main opposition party, People's Democratic Party, and Peter Obi of the Labour Party. Voters are hoping the next leader will be able to address the ongoing security threats from insurgents to kidnappings, as well as double-digit inflation and unprecedented oil theft. Violence has plagued Nigeria in the run-up to the election. On Wednesday, gunmen killed a senatorial candidate from the Labour Party in southeastern Inugu state. Just days after suspected rebels killed eight police officers, some people say they'll not vote for fear of reprisals, as Nigeria's Electoral Commission announced Monday 240 polling stations will remain closed because of security concern. This is a farmer in Zamfara state who was forced to flee his home last year after his community came under attack. Because my life is being threatened by bandits, they are targeting my life. I barely managed to escape from the east, and they are still looking for me. So how can I go out and cast my vote? Here in the United States, the special counsel leading the Justice Department's criminal probes into Donald Trump has subpoenaed Ivanka Trump, his daughter, and Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, to testify to a federal grand jury about efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. That's according to The New York Times, which reports the subpoenas by special counsel Jack Smith follow similar efforts to compel the testimony of Vice President Mike Pence, who's reportedly resisting his subpoena. Trump's former national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, 
and former chief of staff Mark Meadows were also recently subpoenaed by Smith. Minnesota lawmakers have approved a bill ending a requirement that applicants seeking a driver's license show proof of legal residence in the United States. Democratic Governor Tim Walz has promised to sign the driver's licenses for all bill, which will benefit more than 80,000 undocumented immigrants, most of whom are over the legal driving age of 16. The legislation was co-sponsored by state Senator Zeneb Mohammed, who moved to Minneapolis from with her family at age nine from Somalia. What we're doing is we're doing a rule change to allow undocumented people to not have to provide social security numbers because they don't have that. This debate is about the safety of our roads, and we can debate that tonight if you'd like, because there are 40,000 accidents on the highways. And the people of Minnesota, they want to make sure that the people who are driving on our roads have the driving education that they need. Passage of the driver's licenses for all bill caps two decades of campaigning by immigrant rights groups. Also Wednesday, Minnesota senators approved a bill to restore voting rights to people convicted of felonies as soon as they're released from prison rather than once they've completed their parole. Current restrictions on voting have disproportionately affected black and Native American Minnesotans. In Florida, three people were shot dead Wednesday in Orange County, including a nine-year-old girl and a journalist covering the violence. The violence began when a gunman opened fire on a 20-year-old woman, killing her. Hours later, the suspect returned to the scene and fired on journalists covering the initial shooting, killing 24-year-old Spectrum News reporter Dylan Lyons and critically wounding photojournalist Jesse Walden. The nine-year-old was shot dead inside a home with her mother— uh, where her mother was also found in critical condition. Police arrested a suspect with a lengthy criminal history that includes weapons charges. Weekend news anchor Luana Munoz of Orlando NBC affiliate WESH covered the scene. This is every reporter's absolutely worst nightmare. We, we go home at night afraid that something like this will occur. And that, that is what happened here. Um, so again, we are at Orlando Regional Medical Center where we have learned that one of our own, a fellow reporter, uh, has died while, while out covering a shooting. The Orlando shootings came as four family members were found shot to death in Daphne, Alabama. They were the 83rd and 84th mass shootings recorded in the United States since January 1st, well over averaging one a day. The attorney general of Pennsylvania is investigating possible criminal charges over the derailment of a Norfolk Southern train in East Palestine, just across the border in Ohio. Governor Josh Shapiro said environmental officials are continuing to monitor for any contamination in his state of Pennsylvania. Shapiro spoke Tuesday at a press conference with Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and EPA head Michael Regan. We will hold accountable Norfolk Southern the company that made this vigilance necessary. The combination of Norfolk Southern's corporate greed, incompetence, and lack of care for our residents is absolutely unacceptable to me. 
Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is visiting East Palestine today after coming under enormous pressure for his initial response to the disaster. Critics say he should have visited the site of the crash immediately and rejected his claims that he was powerless to improve rail regulations. On Wednesday, former President Trump visited East Palestine and blasted Biden's response to the crash, as well as his absence, saying he was busy, quote, touring Ukraine. In 2018, the Trump administration rescinded an Obama-era rule that would have required more sophisticated brakes on trains carrying hazardous materials. Trump's EPA also rolled back many other environmental regulations. And here in New York, environmental groups and community members are sounding the alarm after Holtec International, the owner of the decommissioned Indian Point nuclear plant, said it plans to dump some one million gallons of radioactive water into the Hudson River as soon as August. The water contains tritium, a byproduct of nuclear fission that cannot be filtered out of water and which could lead to a host of negative environmental and health effects. The advocacy group Riverkeeper said, quote, it's time to draw the line against using the Hudson as a dumping ground. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, Friday marks one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Over the past year, at least 8,000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed, according to the United Nations, describing that figure as only the tip of the iceberg, with the true death toll believed to be much higher. The U.N. Refugee Agency said this week more than 8 million refugees have fled the fighting in Ukraine. On Wednesday, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres repeated his call for the war to end. War is not the solution. War is the problem. People in Ukraine are suffering enormously. Ukrainians, Russians, and people far beyond need peace. And while prospects may look bleak today, we must all work knowing that genuine, lasting peace must be based on the UN Charter and international law. The longer the fighting continues, the more difficult this work will be. We don't have a moment to lose, and I thank you. The U.N. Secretary General spoke as the U.N. General Assembly debates a motion to demand Russia, quote, immediately, completely and unconditionally withdraw all of its military forces from the territory of Ukraine. During the debate at the U.N., Russia accused the United States and other Western nations of trying to, quote, plunge the entire world into the abyss of war, unquote, by sending military arms to Ukraine. On Wednesday, President Biden met with leaders from NATO's nine easternmost countries, the so-called Bucharest Nine. As NATO's eastern flank, you're in the front lines of our collective defense, and you know better than anyone what's at stake in this conflict, not just for Ukraine, but for the freedom of democracies throughout Europe and around the world. You know, when um, that's what President Zelensky and I spoke about when I was in Kyiv two days ago. And uh, the leaders around this table have repeatedly stepped up to reaffirm our shared commitment to all these values. 
Meanwhile, in Moscow, Russian President Vladimir Putin hosted Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi Wednesday. This comes as the Biden administration is warning China against arming Russia. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations says China would be crossing a, quote, red line if it provides lethal military aid to Russia. Well, today we spend the hour looking at the war in Ukraine and its impact around the world. We begin with two guests. In New York, Nina Khrushcheva is joining us, professor of international affairs at the New School. She's the great-granddaughter of the former Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev. And Hanna Perakhoda is a Ukrainian Ph.D. student in history at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland, where she's joining us from as well. She's a member of the democratic socialist organization Sozialny Ruch. She's also part of the European Network for Solidarity with Ukraine, born and raised in Donetsk in eastern Ukraine. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Uh, Hanna Perakhoda, let's begin with you. Um, it has been a year. Friday marks the one year, February 24th, 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine. Can you talk about what has happened since? Thank you for having me. Yeah, there is a lot of things uh, to say today. Um, a year ago, major powers assumed that Ukraine will fall within three weeks. But uh, one year passed already and Ukraine resists. And this is not just uh, Putin who was surprised by this massive resistance, but also most of the observers from outside Ukraine. And I tend to think that it was indeed the lack of expertise, the lack of knowledge in Ukraine, which is the largest European country, and that prevented us from understanding uh, that this is a war of imperial aggression and that Ukrainians will resist against it. Um, and unfortunately, this lack of knowledge and this denial of Ukrainian uh, agency still prevents some of us from understanding the nature of this war and from acting in a responsible manner. And yeah, this morning, uh, Russian missiles were raining down upon Ukrainian cities again. And the systematic bombings of the residential er uh, uh, areas and of uh, civil in infrastructure uh, showed us, uh, showed Ukrainians that the massive terror against civilians is a deliberate strategy of the Russian army. And this year, what we saw in Bucha, in uh, Izum, in Kherson, and in other cities uh, from where the Russian troops were um, kicked out, uh, this, all these atrocities uh, showed to Ukrainians what, what actually awaits any territory uh, if it is seized by Russia. And this is the reason why, um, after one year of full-scale invasion, Ukrainians still reject firmly the idea of uh, partition of their country. They refuse to leave their families, their friends under the occupation where they face uh, murder, rape and uh, constant terror. And that's why they, they actually persist to ask for military support, not just Ukrainian government, but Ukrainian people, uh, in order to be able to defend themselves against uh, the regime that expresses openly uh, its genocidal intent.
Elaborate on that. Uh, there, uh, Russia expressing its uh, genocidal intent, and also speak. You're joining us from Lausanne, but you were in Lviv uh, in May uh, with a group of activists from Europe, where you went and met uh, uh, members of uh, left-wing activists in Lviv. If you could talk about that visit too, but first, uh, elaborate on what you said about Russia's genocidal intent in Ukraine. Yeah, I will try in a few words. I mean, to understand the extent of the threat that Russian aggression presents for Ukrainians, it is necessary to know, to realize what Ukraine means for the Russian political elite's uh, identity. Um, because by analyzing this war for a strictly geopolitical perspective, we often fail to see that the relationship between Russia and Ukraine is marked by a very long history of imperial domination and oppression. And Russian nationalists, uh, Putin is a, is a Russian nationalist, they see the separate existence of Ukrainians as uh, something which will lead to the destruction not only of the so-called Russian civilizational space, like post-Soviet space, but also of the body of the Russian nation itself. So Ukraine is seen by them as an existential threat to their national identity. And as archaic is, as it may seem to, to us, to some of us, national ideologies still have a very great uh, performative potential, performative power. They can incite people to perpetuate wars and genocide. And this conflict has a genocidal potential because we have an ideology and this ideology denies the right of the other, the right of Ukrainians to simply exist as a separate entity. We really have to take it seriously and to be aware of what the Russian occupation means for Ukrainians. There, there was a lot of specialists who were already uh, alarming um, and saying against the, uh, talking about this genocidal threat. Uh, so, yeah. And about the trip in Lviv, uh, um, yes, with the European uh, Network of Solidarity with Ukraine, we formed a delegation of uh, political activists, civic activists, trade unionists, deputies, uh, journalists from more than 12 European countries. And we went to Ukraine to meet the representatives of local grassroots communities, initiatives, feminists, um, trade unionists, LGBT community, Roma community, ecologists. And um, actually, we needed to know better the perspectives, their perspectives on war, their indications, their needs. Um, they are organizing themselves, actually, to help each other. And they are doing it in a huge, on a huge scale. And uh, for the Ukrainian population, this kind of uh, direct solidarity, which comes from which comes from ordinary activists, ordinary people, and not from big international organizations. This is something very important because they are not, uh, they do not want to be perceived as uh, mute victims who expect charity. Because Ukrainians, this is a society which is resisting and self-organizing. And we decided that we must show that uh, we recognize and we support uh, uh, the agency of uh, Ukrainians. And because we want that after the victory, uh, the reconstruction of Ukraine is not done uh, 
at the expense of its population. And we don't want, you know, external actors to decide what is good for Ukrainians. We want the decision to belong to the population. So we uh, made this delegation to help their voices to be heard, the voices of local activists and not the voices of, you know, some self-proclaimed experts who have never set foot in Ukraine. So, Hannah, you've also uh, said that uh, activists in, in Ukraine, uh, while simultaneously opposing the war, of course, they've also systematically been imposing, uh, opposing uh, the neoliberal policies of the Ukrainian government. Uh, could you uh, elaborate on that, uh, how long that's been going on and how it connects to this opposition to this war and simultaneously support for the government resisting the occupation? Uh, yeah, it's an important question because before, even before the invasion, uh, Ukraine was already one of the poorest uh, and most indebted countries in Europe. Uh, it had been at war already for eight years uh, at war in the eastern part of Ukraine. But uh, this year, the country's GDP has fallen by uh, a third and many people has not has lost their jobs, but not only jobs, also they lost their homes, their relatives. And unfortunately, they are not uh, 8,000, as you said before, but probably tens of thousands of civilians are killed and military casualties are probably exceeded already uh, 100,000 men. Uh, so the, the Ukrainians actually defend their country in extremely difficult conditions. But while they are doing it, the Ukrainian authorities have undertaken anti-social reforms and more than that, under these difficult wartime conditions, they are continuing to liberalize and privatize the economy. And they are actually undermining the economic and political sovereignty of uh, Ukraine that Ukrainians are actually fighting for and given their lives for. So uh, Ukrainians want to regain their independence from the Russian aggression, uh, Ukrainian people and Ukrainian government. But Ukrainian people do not want to fall into neoliberal uh, dependence. Uh, and they need allies uh, all over the world, first of all, in their struggle against the Russian occupation, but also in their struggle against the uh, anti-social policies of their own government. Uh, that's why, for example, Ukrainian activists uh, uh, on the left ask us, uh, ask European and Western countries to cancel uh, the Ukrainians for in-debt, to confiscate the Russian assets, to use them for the reconstruction of Ukraine, because Ukraine will really need it. And uh, the uh, ask us to make pressure on our governments to make the Ukrainian government respect social and labor rights of its population, because these are the preconditions to rebuild a sustainable economy and to make a Ukraine uh, uh, that million, millions are fighting for, to make this kind of Ukraine a, a reality. I want to bring Nina Khrushcheva into the conversation, um, joining our guest, uh, Hannah Parachoda. Um, Nina Khrushcheva, again, professor of international affairs at New School. But you go back and forth to Moscow. Your reflections on this last year since Russia invaded Ukraine, both inside Russia and the total number of soldiers, it's believed, have died or wounded about 200,000. 
about the same number of people who were in the stadium yesterday as uh, President Putin addressed them. Well, thank you, Amy. Um, well, first of all, I just want to say that many of us, thousands of us, millions of us are tremendously sorry for what uh, Russia did, is doing to Ukraine. Uh, deeply embarrassing, but, you know, they've, they've been mea culpa all the time, so I just want, don't want to um, don't want to revel in that, but want to move forward towards the question. And, and uh, uh, we don't know exactly. I mean, the Russian casualties are very deeply hidden secret. We don't know that. Uh, Putin did speak uh, at, the, um, at that celebration at the Luzhniki, the main stadium in Moscow, uh, 200,000. In fact, I was quite surprised. I thought it was a very meager number comparing to uh, what the importance of this sort of propaganda performance uh, was, so they should have bust more people into this. Uh, and it wasn't really, I mean, it was such a Soviet propaganda staged formula that very people actually, um, actually kind of made believe in it. Uh, well, in the last year, uh, look, we can't even start to discuss it in the presence of Ukrainians. But when I got to Moscow in June uh, last year, it seemed like it's still, you know, Putin's in his speech. He just spoke uh, on the 21st. He had his uh, his address to um, uh, to his government, kind of talking about the war and Western existential threat and whatnot. So in June, it seemed like that Western existential threat didn't exist. It was more in terms of conversation. So there's still... Western signs and restaurants and, you know, people were living separate, absolutely separate lives. And by the time I left in January, you really feel that that existential threat is uh, not only in a conversation, uh, not only in, 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 a, in a conversation from the Kremlin, but everybody feels that Russia is behind the Iron Curtain, the self-imposed iron, iron, iron Curtain from the West. But there's really very little protest that one can do. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen the protests from the mothers. We saw Evgeny Prigozhin, you just, uh, you just quoted him saying that, uh, that the, uh, the government doesn't give him enough ammunition so he can fight and whatnot. So there's a lot of cracks in the last year, although Putin's speech on the 21st seemed very firm. Uh, it is an existential threat, not just in Ukraine, but also against the whole West. So it's a repetition of what uh, communism versus capitalism was uh, during the Cold War in the 20th century, although it's quite unclear what exactly Putin is oppositioning, but never mind. That's an easy way of of basically bringing society into your uh, kind of geopolitical um, geopolitical idea that it's Russia versus everybody else because everybody else wants the end the end for Russia, but there is a lot of cracks in it, and we see the separate voices, and so it's really not entirely a very safe. Uh, position of the war uh, for Putin to be in, especially in that speech on the 21st. It was a lot about the war. It was a lot about the West. But it was really very little promise of how it is going to be in the future. So Russia is fighting, not clear for what and not clear how. 
So that's, this has been uh, the outcome of the year. The outcome of the year is that the victory is not coming, but the fight will, will, will continue eternally. I want to ask you how you see this ending, Professor Khrushcheva, and also put the question to Hannah. I mean, you, you explain what happened with the uh, Soviet Union pulling out of Afghanistan. Um, what could happen here? Well, it's 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 really impossible to predict. But, uh, you know, I think you and I spoke about this uh, at the beginning when it all uh, when it all started. And I was uh, in conversation with somebody very close up top, an important person uh, next to Putin who said it's going to be an Afghanistan disaster. So that was two days into the uh, into this. And it seemed I mean, it seemed plausible, but it also seemed impossible at the same time. And why would one get into this situation that is so obviously going to be a losing proposition? And so today we see that it is in Afghanistan because Afghanistan was like that. It's 1979, uh, was late Leonid Brezhnev. He was, not that he was losing power, but he needed to, you know, strengthening the Soviet project. And in some ways, Putin needed to strengthen uh, the Russian imperial project. And as Hannah said, Ukraine is existential, is important to that uh, imperial project. So you go in, but you're absolutely so wrong about going in because you lose perspective after 22 uh, years in power. And Brezhnev was for, I don't know, 15 years in power at that time. So you lose perspective and you start a war that has no solution. So we don't know how it's going to end because for Putin now, and that's what we heard on the 21st, for Putin now, the victory is if the West uh, stops being in opposition to Russia. That means, and that's what you mentioned, Joe Biden being in Kiev and being in, in, uh, uh, and being in Poland. Uh, for Joe Biden, it is the West is not going to retrieve. The West is going to stay firm. So for both of them, they both announced that it is something that another side cannot win. So for Putin, the West to step off. Uh, for Ukraine, it's not going to give up its territory. So I think we are in for a protracted battle until either Russia or Ukraine, and I hate to say that, but it's possible, uh, either Russia or Ukraine can no longer fight. And so then the negotiations would come. But that can take a really very, very long time. And that can be victory for Ukraine before that. I don't see exactly how it's going to be victory for Putin, but I don't think we can predict uh, in the near future, uh, how it's going to resolve? I do think it's a long, it's a long, long fight. As long as Putin stands firm, and that's what he actually said in his speech. He's going to stand firm. He's going to uh, wear it out. He's going to wear the West out. He's going to uh, wear Ukraine out by destroying infrastructure. So he is going to take everything, or he is going to uh, put everything on on um, uh, on his victory, or at least not his defeat. And that's, once again, as I said, we don't know where it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and how long it will take. Anita, could you also talk about uh, the extent to which, or if at all, uh, perceptions uh, within Russia have changed of the war? Well, at the beginning, as you know, uh, there was really very strong opposition. And in, in a week, the free media was gone. Uh, independent organizations were gone. People were arrested in, in the streets. Uh, I think even when I was leaving in January, there were about 
at least one third of people in the street in Moscow were police. So police is walking around essentially giving you a message that you are not going to be protesting. Every turnstile on the subway had a police standing next to it. So there are many, many subway stops. And they are not there to arrest, but they're warning you if something happens. Uh, so that is kind of the, the, the domination of the state uh, and also with a message, because Putin's message also changed over the year, over this year. At the beginning was the uh, demilitarization, uh, the preventing the destruction of the eastern parts of Ukraine and so on and so forth, the defend the Donbass region. And and then the, the sort of the shrieking message would become more and more existential. We are there against the West. And so in the speech on the 21st, it was also for the people, it was, look, that's how we're looking at it, we as a country, and don't you dare to think any differently about this. So it's not that people started supporting the war more, but they're much more afraid now, they're terrified now to say that they're not supporting. Because, I mean, I, I did my own polling a little bit in January and December, and I would say that over 50% of 60-plus of the Russian population absolutely do not support this. But because it's framed is that uh, the West wants to, to strategically demolish Russia, to defeat it strategically, of course, and Hannah also mentioned that, the imperial psyche cannot take it. So what, we're going to not be in existing as a country of 11 time zones. And so there's a very kind of split uh, split reaction to uh, split reaction to all of this. The war wants to be over, but very, I mean, Russians do not want, many Russians, not, not all Russians, many Russians do not want to be defeated. And I think the Kremlin uses this cracks in people's psyche quite uh, quite well. On the other hand, as I mentioned, there is a lot of cracks in, in Putin's own entourage, although he doesn't seem to be noticing it. But if you look at the audience uh, on the 21st, it's all the elites and all the governments, uh, you could see that some of them were really, really pained by, uh, by, by these pronouncements. They really clearly wanted to be over. They just haven't decided how they can go about it. And Hannah, final thoughts. We just have 30 seconds. How do you see this unfolding now? Um, I'm a historian, so I cannot uh, make predictions, but I can uh, explain some tendencies that I see. Uh, a thing, uh, I'm sure that a compromise with Putin would set a deadly precedent, given all the wannabe imperialists the rights of, uh, to wage the war of aggression and the nuclear blackmail. And it would literally restore the system of international relations that existed before the World War I and, and II. So I think history should have taught us that the most terrible wars actually happen when uh, we forget that peace and democracy are not just empty words. They are the uh, achievements of our past struggles, the achievements that must be constantly preserved in the face of uh, authoritarian and obscurantist forces. And Ukrainians haven't forgot that yet, but a lot of people in the Western countries seem to have uh, forget this simple truth. Anna Parakhoda, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Ukrainian PhD student at University of Lausanne in Switzerland, part of the European Network for Solidarity with Ukraine. And Nina Khrushcheva, professor of international affairs at New School here in New York. Coming up, we look at how Russian-Chinese relations have changed since Russia invaded Ukraine. And then a view from the global south, particularly Africa, how the continent is affected by the Ukraine war. Stay with us. 
Melodies of the Moment, Lullaby, by Ukrainian composer Valentin Silvestrov. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. As we continue our coverage of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we turn now to look at how the war has impacted Russia-Chinese relations. On Wednesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin hosted China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, in Moscow. This is Putin. International relations today are more difficult. They have not improved after the collapse of the bipolar system. But on the contrary, they have become more sharp. In this regard, cooperation in the international arena between the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation, as we have repeatedly underlined, plays an important role in stabilizing the international situation. I think we have a very good opportunity today to continue our close strategic cooperation and contact in protection of our mutual strategic interests. Under the strategic leadership of Chairman Xi Jinping and President Vladimir Putin, the relationship between China and Russia has adopted a mature character. It is solid and will withstand all tests of shifting international situations. It is important to coordinate our positions on the bilateral agenda, as well as on regional and international spheres. So that's China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, and the Russian President Vladimir Putin. Chinese President Xi Jinping is expected to visit Moscow in the coming months to meet with Putin. Meanwhile, the Biden administration's warning China against supplying Russia with lethal military aid, saying doing so would be crossing a red line. Joining us from Baltimore, Maryland, is Ho-Fung Hong. He's a professor of political economy and sociology at Johns Hopkins University. His books include Clash of Empires, From Chimerica to the New Cold War, and The China Boom, Why China Will Not Rule the World. Uh, professor, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you talk about the significance of just—well, look— What's happened in the last year? And then you've got the U.S. kerfuffle with China over the balloon, which has really intensified hostility. And then finally, you have yesterday, Wang Yi, the foreign, uh, the top diplomat, meeting with President Putin and their message to the United States and the world. Yes, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, actually, that uh, it's something that uh, everybody expects to happen, that uh, China is getting closer to closer, uh, closer and closer to Russia. Uh, because when we look back a year ago, uh, right before the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened, uh, Xi Jinping and uh, Putin had a summit uh, in Beijing and issued a Russia-China joint statement in February 4th, 2022. And in the strong statement, joint statement, and we... I urge everybody to actually go back and reread that statement that actually it's uh, lay out a very clear and systematic 
vision of a new world order that both Russia and China agree on. That is, uh, Russia um, just, uh, and China should uh, have their own fears of influence. In the case of Russia, it is the former Soviet space, uh, including the former Soviet states and, and Eastern Europe. And in China, of course, it's South China Sea and Taiwan question and, uh, and the Asia-Pacific region. And in the statement that they, they, they pledge uh, supporting each other, um, uh, desire to get rid of U.S. allies and U.S. influence in their spheres of influence. So it is a very uh, clear manifestation of their shared strategic interests. So, of course, and then after the statement uh, was issued for, uh, shortly that uh, the war uh, happened, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, and from a Beijing perspective, that they had all the reasons to, 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 to wish uh, Putin's uh, success uh, in its adventure in Ukraine, uh, because uh, if the West uh, failed to stop Putin, uh, and if uh, Putin succeeded in, in Ukraine, then uh, the Western or international U.S.-led international alliance uh, would uh, lose its credibility, and then it will uh, provide China with uh, a larger freedom of action uh, in, uh, over the South China Sea issues and over Taiwan. Uh, Professor Hofan, could you also respond uh, to uh, the question of whether China can play a role in mediations or diplomacy in uh, negotiating an end or a ceasefire in this war? I mean, European officials, including Macron, have said that China should play such a role. China is uh, due to issue a position paper uh, tomorrow or before tomorrow. What do you expect that position paper to say? And what prospects do you think there are that China could play a key mediating role? Actually, uh, if China is willing to do it, and it has the potential to do it, of course, that uh, China is important economically. And, uh, and, and now Putin depends a lot on China's uh, uh, economic assistance and, and uh, in financial, uh, and evading financial sanctions and, and uh, providing all this uh, long-level uh, assistance to Russia right now. Uh, so definitely Putin will listen to China. And also historically, actually, before the war, then China has been uh, very close to Ukraine. And let's not uh, forget that uh, Ukraine helped China uh, get the first aircraft carrier that in late 1990s, after the Soviet breakup, uh, China uh, purchased a Soviet era uh, aircraft carrier from Ukraine with all the engine and blueprint uh, intact. So it is how China retrofitted into the China first uh, aircraft carrier, this Liaoning. And also, Ukraine is included in China Belt and Road Initiative, and China is pouring investment in infrastructure in Ukraine before the invasion. Uh, but the, unfortunately, that after the war uh, broke out, after Russia started invading Ukraine, and China has been, at least on the kind of, uh, from the perspective of the optics, has been very close to Russia, but not so to Ukraine. For example, there are other states that claim neutrality and uh, saying that they are willing to do the mediator, like Turkey, uh, which is uh, part of NATO. So Erdogan also visited Russia and, and met with Putin, uh, but also he also visited Ukraine and met with Zelensky, so it seems more uh, two sides. And also Israel is doing the same, that um, uh, the Israelis' uh, leaders are meeting with Putin and talking to the Russian side, and also they are talking to the Ukrainian side and providing substantive humanitarian assistance uh, to Ukraine. Uh, China, uh, right now, over the last years, that they have been uh, talking to the Russian side and expressing, uh, and in China, propaganda the machine is repeating all these uh, Russian lines 
or interpretation of the war, and they don't even call it an invasion. They don't call it a war, and, and they call it a oper uh, special operation and blaming U.S. for starting the war. Uh, and and uh, so far, we don't see a lot of diplomatic effort on the China side to talk to the Ukraine side and let alone meeting with Zelensky. So it is quite unfortunate that uh, it, over the last year, China has been, uh, at least the perception is that it's very much on the Russian side rather than uh, playing both sides. Professor Hofang, what about the question of uh, China uh, supplying Russia with military equipment and, and weapons? I mean, China has denied that it'll do so, but there are reports that that will happen. I mean, U.S. officials claim that that's likely. Zelensky has said that will lead to world war. The American ambassador to the U.N. has said that would be crossing a red line. Uh, what is your response? Do you think that's likely? I think it will be likely, uh, but it will be a more ambiguous situation because you look at how China support, uh, for example, the North Korean nuclear program and, and Iran uh, and Syria, all these sanction states. And China has been helping this sanction state, helping these states to evade sanctions for a long time. And But uh, it is far from a formal governmental support of it. And, and in, in China, there's a lot of companies, state-owned company or state-connected private company. Some of them are even company a lot in mainland China, but in Hong Kong, which is a, have a special status. Um, so they, uh, what I expect uh, would happen is that uh, these companies uh, would provide assistance. Now they are, I think they are already providing non-lethal uh, assistance, financial assistance. Uh, there's a lot of evidence of, in it. Uh, for example, a company, a trading company in Hong Kong has been found uh, providing uh, uh, chips and components and uh, key supplies to support the Russian drone program. Uh, so a lot of these companies are going to help Russia. And then I won't be surprised if in the end some of these companies are caught providing lethal support uh, uh, to, to Russian war effort. But then the government just uh, looked the other way and let this company help uh, 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 Russia. And then when uh, people are trying to help uh, to hold the uh, Chinese government accountable, they just say that it is not the government doing it. It is the company. We don't know about it. So this kind of thing has been going on regarding China assistance of North Korea and Iran and other sanction states to evade sanctions. So I won't be very surprised if China is uh, doing the same with Russia. Well, Professor Hofeng Hung, we want to thank you so much for being with us, teaches political economy and sociology at Johns Hopkins University. Coming up, we look at how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has impacted Africa. Back in 30 seconds. <laughs> Necessary begging, that's what they call them for area. Oh, no, one necessary begging, that's what they call them for area. Oh, no, no, one necessary begging, that's what they call them for area. Unnecessary begging by Felakuti. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As we continue our coverage of the first year of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we look at its impact on Africa, where many countries are facing spikes in fuel and food prices while already coping with ongoing conflicts as well as the climate crisis. This week, Russia, China and South Africa are holding military exercises off the coast of South Africa. Our next guest is Kenyan writer, 
political analyst Nanjala Nyabola. Uh, she is joining us now from London. In September, she wrote a piece for Foreign Affairs headlined Africa's Ukraine Dilemma, Why the Continent is Caught Between Russia and the West. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us again. Um, Nanjala, why don't you talk about that, your thesis that Africa's caught between the West and uh, Russia, and what that means, what Russia has done in Africa, and also the effect of the Ukraine war. Thanks for having me back, Amy. It's a multi-layered issue. First of all, I think it's always important to establish from the top that Africa is a large place. It's a complicated continent. And instead of there being one single response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there's actually been a, com a, a complication. There's actually been multiple responses to, to the war. There are countries that have actively come out in support of Russia and are engaging diplomatically and militarily for various reasons. Um, you look at the Central African Republic, Libya, Mali, and these are countries whereby not only has there been a retreat uh, of democracy, but it's actually been outright conflict for the last uh, 10, 15 years. And it's created a leadership vacuum and a political vacuum that uh, Russian militia, uh, mil Russian paramilitary groups or uh, militia groups like Wagner have been able to exploit. So these are um, these are mercenary groups that are providing military support and are, provi are basically holding up governments that are overseeing a state that has all but collapsed in everything but name. And this is really the country that are providing the most uh, diplomatic support or vocally coming out in favor of Russia in this crisis. And then there are countries like Sudan and Uganda and Zimbabwe, which have found themselves on the wrong side of political interventions, whether we're talking about sanctions against the military regime uh, in Sudan, we're talking about sanctions against the regime in Zimbabwe. And sort of you get the sense that they're playing off um, Western countries and the Russia against each other to try and get some kind of leeway, to try and get some kind of political room under a sanctions regime. I think perhaps the most complicated uh, country in the, on the continent is the South African case because South Africa doesn't really need, is not facing sanctions, doesn't really need um, the kind of political support that a country, say, like Zimbabwe or the Central African Republic might need. And I think to understand South Africa, we really have to understand the political history of Africa over the last, over the entire 20th century. And this is something that I think a lot of Western analysts grapple with because of the inability to contend with topics like racism, like colonialism, like imperialism and neo-imperialism. Because South Africa was the last African country to gain independence. And throughout the worst years of the apartheid regime, there was a lot of support coming from Western governments for uh, the apartheid government. And it was indeed the countries of the East that provided the support that uh, anti-apartheid activists, military, uh, required to stand up against the apartheid regime. And so for someone like Cyril Ramaphosa and many of the senior representatives of the South African government, I imagine that there's a slightly different interpretation of the history of relationships between all of these regions of the world. And is colored by this history that Western analysis finds itself incapable of providing because of this partial understanding of what African history looks like when you're viewing it from Africa. I would say the vast majority of African countries have uh, embraced a more neutral tone and have refused to take sides, again, because of recent political history. We're talking about nation states that are still navigating European excess. When we think about, for example, the Mediterranean crisis, the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean, and the subsequent militarization of the Sahel region, many African countries are having to navigate losing, effectively losing sovereignty over their boundaries in favor, uh, in, because of European politics, because of European security concerns. 
we're talking about, the, I think, initially, the, the moral hazard of neo-imperialism, I think, is what many African countries are struggling with, because it really is a cho- caught between a rock and a hard place, a choice between the last 10, 20 years, whereby the political relationship between Africa and Europe has really not been one of equals, has really one been one of uh, being consumed and being seen as a place that is only valuable for its natural resources and being stuck with Russia's new imperialism in Ukraine, which also then has that political um, familiarity, albeit from a slightly more abstract position. And I think that's why neutrality kind of appeals to a lot of African countries, because we don't want to forget the recent history. We don't want to repeat the recent history, even though there is a recognition that what is happening within Ukraine is fundamentally unjust. And Angela, could you also, you, you talked about this also in your foreign affairs piece. If you could speak specifically, you've just spoken about South Africa uh, and others. If you could speak also uh, about uh, Uganda more and also Cameroon that are uh, both uh, in the case of Cameroon, France, and in the case of Uganda, the U.S., they have support from the U.S., but uh, from the West, but also uh, are receiving military equipment from Russia, if you could talk about that, Russia now being the largest uh, exporter of military uh, weapons to Africa. Again, it's a it's a fracture that exists in many African societies between the citizens of the country and the governments that rule them. Both Uganda and Cameroon are run by governments, administrations that have serious human rights uh, violations, have uh, perpetrated serious human rights violations against their own people. These are governments that are not legitimate. Paul Bia is the second longest serving president um, on the African continent. Yoweri Museveni has been president for 38 years. They have been serious efforts to suppress democracy to suppress freedom, to suppress rights. And within that fracture, the kind of, it's the dependence on Western governments to prop up these regimes that kind of keeps them in place, that allows them to remain and to impose themselves on the people. And that creates a legitimacy gap that Russia has been very able to exploit because there isn't that ability to put pressure on these governments. There's no domestic pressure that can be put on Paul Bia, for example, because the opposition is all is it has stopped to exist in all but name. There is an ongoing conflict that he has been able to um, sort of paper over in the public consciousness. There hasn't even been, you know, the same kind of multilateral response to the conflict in uh, Anglophone regions of Cameroon that we've seen in other conflicts including in Ukraine, even though the scale of death is significant, the scale of violence is significant. And so these leaders are exploiting that democratic gap, that legitimacy gap, to be able to play these two sides against each other. Uganda, for the longest time, was a uh, favored country in the West, was a massive recipient of aid, and still is a massive recipient of aid, has participated in military training exercises with the United States as late as 2020. Um, the United Kingdom provides a lot of military, provides a lot of development assistance, sorry, to um, Uganda. And yet the Ugandan people have no, uh, they cannot hold the president accountable. And so it's that democratic gap that makes it possible for these leaders to try and seek out ways to uh, play off the Russia versus the West. Uganda purchasing arms to use against its own people and also to impose itself in the conflicts in the region. This is really the challenge that is is facing a lot of African people that I think if you asked the citizens of these countries, you definitely find a little bit more moral clarity and a little bit more em- 
empathy, even if you will, with the Ukrainian cause, but because they're represented by leaders who don't represent the will of the people, who are being, who have been propped up by Western governments for the better part of the last 40 years, there really is no way to get that legitimacy except on the whims of, or to get that action, sorry, except on the whims of the leaders. And right now it is about political survival of those individual leaders rather than there being some uh, larger moral uh, cause that is being pursued here. It's really about surviving another five years, Bia surviving another five years, Museveni surviving another five years, another 10 years, and leaving their chosen successor in place. Seconds, Angela, but could you also say very quickly the impact of the war in terms of food prices, of fuel, etc., across the continent? We just have 20 seconds. This is really the biggest issue because it, the war coming at a time when there was already climate crisis in East Africa, we're going to see spiking food prices because of the climate crisis in Somalia. And this has been exacerbated by the fact that Ukraine, Russia, the largest grain exporters in the world, massive dependence also on uh, food aid coming from the World Food Program, coming from Ukraine. And the loss of that leading to a spike in food prices, I think, is going to culminate in a very Nangela, difficult year, you know, particularly you know, for Bolo, East Africa, to whereby the rains have I failed for a so sixth season. And we're facing unprecedented...